0: Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson. My usual co-host, Aaron Miller, is still out of the country. He's in Ghana, Africa. we will be back later this week, so he'll be back with us for the next episode. In the meantime, we have another interview for you. This week, I interviewed Christopher Mims, tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Christopher is somebody I respect a great deal, has lots of interesting ideas and things to say, and uh, several very interesting recent columns. And so we focus most of our discussion on three of those columns, Uh, and the interview will be the rest of this episode. I'll be back at the end to wrap things up, but for now, enjoy the interview. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Christopher. It's great to have you with us. Uh, I thought it'd be great if we just start by having you give us a brief introduction into kind of who you are and what you do, and to some extent, kind of how you got to where you are right now as well.
1: Yeah, so uh, my name is Christopher Mims, and I am a tech columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And um, it, it was a long, strange trip to get to this point in my career. Um, I started really as a science journalist. I have a background in neuroscience. Uh, a lot of my first articles were about uh, the brain, um, later on the environment, climate change, other complex systems. Um, and I started writing about tech, uh, honestly, because a friend of mine became a, a tech editor at New Scientist. And I, I had always had a, a very strong interest in tech. I mean, I have a very distinct memory of reading Stephen Levy's, I think the book is called Insanely Great, His History of Apple, when I was like 12 and and feeling like, wow, it's so incredible that somebody can write something so compelling about technology. Mm, um, yeah. And, you know, it turns out tech is, is there's a lot of adjacencies between Tech and science, but I've also just benefited from the fact that journalism is still very much a trade and you still learn on the job. And, you know, I guess on the strength of my writing/slash reporting, I was able to um, get some really kind of formative uh, and very educational gigs, writing for everything from MIT's Technology Review to, um, uh, you know, like the Kellogg School of Business at one point where I was learning about economics and finance, and then I sort of trained under, um, Kevin Delaney, who used to be an editor at the Wall Street Journal, and also Gideon Litchfield, who was an editor for 16 years at The Economist, while at, um, Quartz, right when it started from before launch. And then that kind of just, I guess, launched me into a position where I was eligible. I was in the running for uh, the tech columnist position at um, the Wall Street Journal, and I think that they wanted somebody who had, you know, just maybe they felt was a little bit, honestly, like younger and and sort of plugged in and and thinking in terms of, uh, you know, what is the real competition for the journal uh, you know, it's not the New York times anymore. It's everyone. And, um, uh, and, and in that way, I think that, that, uh, being a tech columnist these days is, uh, well, there's a million of us, right? <laughs> just one among many. I just happen right. to be at the journal.
0: Right. Yeah. Cool. That's great. Uh, and you're based in, are you based in Baltimore? Is that right? I know you used to be, are you still there?
1: Yeah. It's, it's funny. I, I, I love being here because it is the, uh, it's the most real it's the most affordable city on the Amtrak corridor so I get to spend a lot of time <laughs> right. in New York I get to spend a do lot of time in DC. Do you feel like it's a
0: handicap being based kind of on the east coast and 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 not say on the west coast not in Silicon Valley I mean, I'm based in Utah so you know I'm also kind of out of that sort of Silicon Valley bubble and I think feel like sometimes actually it's helpful uh, to see the world from a different perspective but do you ever feel like it holds you back being based there?
1: No, I mean, I think my inspiration are people like, I mean, you and people like Ben of Stratechery. I mean, he's based in Taiwan and he's writing some of the smartest stuff there is about tech. And you could ask yourself, well, how is that? And I think that the answer is that, um, you know, we live in an age when um, the Internet, especially with tech, really enables you to write about tech from anywhere, to research tech deeply from anywhere. And, you know, at the end of the day, the, the instrument that a journalist still uses is, you know, you're diving through documents, you're interviewing people. Uh, when I'm out in the Valley, it definitely makes a big difference in terms of making those personal connections and building trust sure. and helping me source up. But, you know, when I need to research a story, uh, the odds are I've never written about that topic before. And I'm gonna be making, you know, a dozen phone calls to people all over the world regardless.
0: Right. So what I wanted to talk to you about today was several of the columns that you've written, um, starting with this week's piece, which was about, I think the phrase that you used was e-governance and kind of uh, governments trying to learn from tech companies in terms of how they operate. Uh, The second one is a piece that you wrote last week about uh, the tech bubble bursting. Uh, and I know that that seemed to, you know, just looking at the numbers on the Wall Street Journal website, that seemed to get shared a lot more than some of the other pieces and somewhat controversial. I guess it's, it's a topic that continues to be controversial. And so I'm looking forward to discussing that side of it. Uh, and then the third piece was one that you wrote about Apple back at the end of March, right after the, the uh, smaller iPad Pro was announced when uh, you wrote a piece that basically poured some cold water, at least, on the idea that this iPad Pro could replace a PC for many people. So I'd love to just talk through each of those three columns in turn, um, starting with this week's piece. And kind of how did you come to write that piece? And, and I guess more broadly, kind of how do you come up with ideas for these columns?
1: So um, this week's piece about e-governance is an example of something that... Um, gets researched for months and just mutates and mutates and mutates, it was actually born uh, in a conversation with, of all people, uh, a congressional aide. His name is Matt Lira. He is uh, the author of the JOBS Act, which is what has given us equity crowdfunding, which for people who aren't familiar is the effort to, um, the classic example is what if everyone who had participated in Oculus Rift's Kickstarter had gotten shares in the company instead of headsets, which, you know, by the way, they still haven't gotten some of them, um, you know, wouldn't that have been an amazing windfall when it sold to Facebook? Uh, so in an unusual show of, uh, bipartisanship, uh, the jobs act was passed. Um, and you know, he and I were talking about what it meant and what is going to happen in the future. And he pointed out that you know, tech is this one thing that you know, even in our hyperpartisan age, you can get it. People still believe in innovation in D.C. and and you know, some really landscape-altering um, legislation has been passed. And and frankly, I think people are because tech is so divorced from D.C. and policymaking more of it's on its way uh, some of it has already been passed some of it is just waiting to be implemented and it you know it's going to create whole new industries um, and you know after that conversation I just kept researching and I realized that e-governance is this giant topic um, Estonia is a really incredible example of a country that has um, basically turned its in made its entire uh government it system work on a single verified identity um and and that is so compelling a prospect that they invented this uh this very unique thing called uh e-residency where you can go to any estonian embassy they will give you a a card and a little like usb um it's basically like something for two factor authentication Um, and you can now set up a business in Estonia. You can set up a bank account remotely. You can, uh, get a lot of the benefits of doing business in the EU without ever moving to an EU country. Um, and so it's kind of, to me, a shocking example of a country behaving like a startup, like Estonia's competition for this is like Stripe. Stripe is trying to make it easy to set up businesses anywhere. Um, So, you know, to me, it's amazing that, uh, especially in an age of multinationals, um, you, you can now maybe borders are finally starting to come down. I mean, you know, you don't have to be Apple, you you have to be Apple to set up a business in Ireland and take advantage of those tax breaks. But Estonia (laughs) wants to make it possible for anybody, you know, any sole proprietorship to do somewhat similar things, uh, which to me is just amazing and, and but but again, it's something that is it's hard to wrap your head around because I think in tech, unless you are you know the 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 counsel for one of these companies, not a lot of people think about the laws and how they affect them until they run afoul of them, and then they start complaining about how you know permissionless innovation or whatever uh but at the end of the day, you know the markets that we all play in are are created by the governments that we're subject to.
0: Yeah, that's uh, it's one of the interesting things where people sometimes talk about this stuff in terms of kind of competitive advantage between countries. Do you feel like that's a real thing? I mean, it feels like it's more so in the case of you know businesses and making it easier for businesses to get started in a country than it is, say, for some of these sort of more citizen-oriented services. But do you do you feel like it's a a real thing and that's going to be kind of an increasing source of competitive advantage for countries going forward?
1: Yeah. And, and I think, I think it's, there's kind of a fascinating study to be made of, you know, people talk about why is there only one Silicon Valley? How can you create Silicon Valley elsewhere? Um, you know, I mean, one reason that entrepreneurs still move to the U S despite our, our pretty awful, uh, immigration laws is simply that we have this, you know, business friendly environment. We have the rule of law, we protect IP. you know, we make it easy to hire and fire people. Um, you know, that's why, uh, what is it? A, a third of all Silicon Valley tech startups are started by immigrants, I think. Uh-huh. Um, but we, you know, Silicon, increasingly Silicon Valley is not the only game in town. You have tech hubs elsewhere in the U S which I think are more significant than people realize. It's just, they tend to be in industries that don't get as much attention, but you know, Biotech is huge. Energy is huge. Uh, Transportation and self-driving cars are going to be huge, and they're going to start in states that have regulations that are friendly to them. I think also kind of at its its peril, Silicon Valley ignores the startup ecosystem in China. I mean, Shenzhen is a very special case. China is a giant market. It's closed to most Western companies, so people don't understand the unique dynamics there. Um, you know, it's also not clear if those, if a lot of the companies there are ever going to be able to make products that really break out in the West and, and maybe they don't have to because they have such a giant domestic market, but you have, you have tech ecosystems everywhere. There's a lot of, you know, what people call path dependency built into them, uh, where, you know, they may function very differently just depending on their unique histories but, um, you know, it all depends on your interest. Do you want to break into these markets? Do you think these markets have lessons for the West? I mean, I think they do, um, you know, but they're all contingent on on these these local conditions. It's funny, I mean, I think that there's a lot more, we think of like Google and Apple and all these other companies as being globe-straddling businesses. But, you know, I think you are some, somebody who appreciates the fact that in, in a lot of ways, they're, they're kind of not. Like they have their equivalents elsewhere and they're very much local tech, tech ecosystems, especially when you go from the West to Asia.
0: Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask about, I mean you kind of get to this a little bit in the piece, is, um, you know, the the governments traditionally have invested in these massive sort of monolithic projects um, and that's kind of not the way that the tech world works these days. And And I guess the question I had was just, is it possible to go to that new way of doing things before you've gone through some of these massive projects that really kind of transform the way things are done, do you have to kind of have a a groundwork laid of changing the way things are done before you can get into some of these smaller, more nimble sort of approaches to things?
1: I mean, I think that's why you have uh, Code for America, which is a nonprofit trying to change the way governments do procurement. Uh, uh, You know, 18F is a good example. So between 18F and what's called the U.S. Digital Service, they're going to have a staff of 500 by the end of 2016 is what's projected. Um so I think people don't realize like how how big this movement to reform government IT has become. Uh and I think there's a lot of opportunity there in terms of part of what they're trying to do is make it so that smaller companies, startups, etc so that it's easier for them to navigate that procurement process. So like if somebody puts out a request for proposal that's, you know, 150 pages long and enormously complicated, you know, there's only a few contractors in the world that can deal with that, you know, unless you're IBM or Accenture or, you know, Booz Allen or whatever, you you are, you're kind of cut out of that process. But one of the things that 18F is trying to do is break it into smaller projects, uh, and make it so that you know, much smaller contractors can, can say, oh, you know, how can we adapt our, yeah. our systems to answer this need? Um, and, you know, I mean, you know, government IT spending is $80 billion a year. Uh, so to the extent that that can be opened up to anyone else, um, it's, a, it's a huge potential market.
0: Cool. Well, let's let's move on to the second of the topic, the uh, columns that I wanted to talk about, which was uh, the one about the tech bubble bursting. And as I said, this one kind of got quite a lot of attention, it felt like, last week after it was published. And I saw, for example, Jessica Lesson from the information kind of pushing back fairly hard on your kind of key conclusion that there was a tech bubble and that it was bursting. Um, I think probably the best starting point is if you just talk us through kind of the thesis for that particular column kind of what is it that you were trying to communicate there and and, you know on what basis did you kind of draw that strong conclusion from it
1: right so this is this is something where uh obviously intelligent people can and do disagree so let me just outline the uh the precepts that i believe and then you know anyone listening if they disagree with any of them you know, honestly, the thesis falls apart. So so that's, I think the basis of discussion, but, but here's the bottom line, right? Like, let's just take a step back. There's a lot of people who get lost in the weeds and they like to point to the success or failure of individual companies. But if you take a step back and I think Bill Gurley did an excellent job of this in his latest blog post, uh, about recapitalization, um, you know, we've created a system where, Everyone admits that there's a great deal of, of bordering on irrational exuberance. Uh, there is also a great deal of opacity because a lot of the funding mechanisms, like if you look at these special purpose vehicles, you know, the, uh, th- they are pitched to investors, uh, sans any real data about what's going on in the companies. Um, you have a lot of people talking about, quote unquote, dumb money. Um, you know, uh, and VCs themselves pointing to that, you know, like, so mutual funds, uh, sovereign wealth funds, family offices coming in late, uh, you could also argue that that's not dumb money because they're not looking for VC like returns. So they're coming into to fund these companies at later stages. Um, so you have the ingredients for a bubble. It would be shocking if you didn't have a bubble, right? You've got, you've got opacity in uh in the in what these companies are actually doing and in their true price, you have exuberance uh you have an illiquid market um, and that's kind of the the last and maybe most important part these companies are worth so much that nobody wants to acquire them and you have something like two hundred unicorns and you had zero iPOs in the first quarter of this year so what are where are the exits uh, so I think that where people sort of push back on this thesis is they're like, well, the, I mean, there's. Uh, let's take like sort of the Mark Andreessen's of the world, I mean, I hate to speak for him, but he, he's made himself such an avatar of a particular view of Silicon Valley that uh, attaching his name to a straw man isn't t- too much of a stretch here. Uh, you know, this bubble is not in the public markets. Granted, you know we're not gonna. I think the last bubble wiped out this, more than six trillion dollars worth of people's wealth from the public markets. Obviously, that's not going to happen because these companies aren't going public. So the scope of the damage of any quote unquote bubble popping is limited. Absolutely, that's true. Um, the second thing you could argue is that the um, number of of breakout hit companies that are are going to come out of this the last few years of, uh, startups is going to be higher than the traditional six or seven that come out. Now that's possible, but you know, the detractors, and this is somebody I interviewed, um, Keith Robois from, uh, Coastal Avengers. He said, you know, not only do I not think, he said that not only does he not think that, we're going to get more than six or seven really big breakout companies per year that actually too much money reduces the number of breakout hits per year because, um, talent is so fragmented. There's so much money chasing talent that you can't concentrate enough talent in one place to make a really exceptional company. Now, obviously his bias is PayPal because that's his, you know, formative experience with this. And, you know, the so-called PayPal mafia, is uh, maybe unusual in the last 20 30 years of tech in terms of the success of everybody who came out of that um, so you you have so many so, uh, unicorns that that uh, even if we had a healthy IPO market there is no way that they are all going to make it through that gauntlet so so we need to cut the number of unicorns in half Um, That means significant down rounds. And I think sort of my final point, and this is, I think, where the most productive disagreement can happen is people forget that, you know, when a market goes from greed to fear, there is this powerful psychological component which creates a feedback loop. You know, people get afraid to invest. Companies start dying or seizing up. That creates more fear. Um, no one can predict exactly when that's going to happen. And I think when you think that's going to happen depends on whether your disposition is sort of bullish or bearish. And I would be the first to admit that I'm the kind of person who is sort of, I think, hyper alert to threats to any given market like this. And, you know, if I had a job other than tech journalist, I would be, I'd be a sell side analyst. Like I'd be the person telling you when to short the stock. So that's the lens through which I think you should view anything that I write about this.
0: So one of the things that people have kind of mentioned, not just about your article, but some of the people that are talking about this in general, one of the things that's interesting is you've got a couple of venture capitalists sort of saying this is happening, which is kind of interesting because they're arguably the ones that are kind of blowing up the bubble to begin with. Um, And you you quote a couple of them, and you quote from Bill Gurley's piece, and then you also quote Keith Rabois uh, from Coastal Ventures. And I guess one of the pushbacks has been you know, these guys are kind of criticizing everybody else's VC activities, but not their own. So kind of, how do you kind of rationalize that? How do you think about the fact that they're sort of saying other VCs are doing this, but we're not. And yet they're kind of projecting this image of what's going on in venture capital to almost everybody but themselves at this point.
1: I mean, personally, that's the most frightening thing of all, because it's not just the VCs that I quoted in this piece. I mean, people have been saying this to me for 18 months and they've been saying it to tons of other journalists too. Um, you know, everybody's uh everybody's portfolios are clean and it's always somebody else's problems. Other people are taking bad terms. Other people are making bets that they wouldn't make. I mean, this is the nature of any market, right? Like these VCs are I think the volume of startups means that they they're probably even if they're signing on to more deals than ever, there's no doubt that they're passing on more deals than ever. Um, you know, it's not just that they're being excluded because they don't agree to terms. So the, every single one of these VCs, I think, has this feeling like, geez, somebody else took some really uh, made-a-sucker bet on, on on something that I passed on. And my feeling is if if they all feel like that, then there's a possibility that the... That some portion of their portfolio, it, it breaks down like this: they're they're the bets that they've made that are doing great, and they're happy to tell you about that. Um, and then there's the question of how much of their portfolio are bets that they made that are just based on their own sort of cognitive biases, and and you see this over and over again. Um, in terms of in terms of you know even the best VCs, uh, really coming out stumping for companies that uh, I think from the beginning uh, seemed dubious and yet you could see how that would fit into their investment thesis.
0: So the the kind of quote that you end with is the kind of famous one from Hemingway about, you know, how people go bankrupt, you know, gradually, then suddenly. And uh, so I guess this raises a question. I, and I did notice that I was kind of doing some research this morning that you'd written a couple of previous pieces about the possibility of a tech bubble and, and what might happen. And so at some point, I guess the question is kind of what do you think is actually going to happen in the end? And when I guess, to some extent, and that's a big, tough question to ask. But I guess you know, if you want to answer it fairly broadly, sort of what do you think is ultimately going to happen here? Do you think there's going to be sort of a a slow deflation, which maybe we're seeing the beginnings of now, or do you think there's going to be something more dramatic that happens at some point?
1: Yeah. So let me articulate the bull case first, Um, because I think it is important to understand. And I think also it's the investment thesis that all VCs have to make right now, because there's sort of a, uh, there's a game theory dimension here where, And no matter what happens, you don't want to miss, everybody doesn't want to miss out on the next Facebook, right? Because that determines the returns of your whole fund. So this is what a VC has to think like right now. The bull case is uh, there is so much quantitative easing. There is so much money on the sidelines. You know, first quarter, record amounts of money. All-time record amounts of money, nearly all-time record amounts of money, poured into VC funds. You know, their LPs are still interested. LPs are committed on you know decade and sometimes 20 and 30 year timescales. You know, they've seen things go up and down before. I mean, in some ways, LPs investing in VCs is recession-proof. So, given that there are, there's more money than ever because of some very specific policies by central banks, uh, and, and that money can't find return elsewhere. Maybe we just have more money than ever for tech startups specifically, and that amount is gonna go up and down, and there's gonna be you know a little mini winters and stuff, but we are just in a whole new regime Uh, in which people everyone buys the thesis that uh, you know the future of every industry is to be disrupted by uh startups that at the very least are acquired and and that at the outside you know replace the old incumbents and that river of money it just doesn't stop and and who cares that it ends up funding a lot of dumb companies that go nowhere because the uh the, the rate of growth of the ones that are winners is just unprecedented. Uber, Slack you know, you name it. Um, that is the the bull case, and if I were a V.C., that would be my investment thesis, because otherwise I'd have no business being a VC. Um, but the other side of that coin is that um, we again, it comes down to macroeconomic conditions um you know and there are tons of kind of asteroids orbiting out there in the sort of financial oort cloud um uh, you know there's there's debt in china there's uh saudi arabia's sort of almost bizarre efforts to move its wealth off of oil and into its sovereign wealth fund uh you know we we're in a time that has never had a, a precedent in in our financial and economic history uh in terms of the, the amount of leverage that all these governments are subject to. And, and we, uh, we could very well have some kind of external crash that's then going to impact the, uh, the market for VC and the market for startups. And in that case, um, you might not see it immediately because if these companies aren't public, their values not being priced day to day. I mean, people have tried to price it, um, more frequently, like the mutual funds that are invested right. in them. And I have, you know, I've talked to the head of, uh, I forget which fund it is, but it's one of Fidelity's, you know, multi-hundred billion dollar funds. And he's like, oh, we have 300 analysts looking at this every day. And it's like, great, but that, that doesn't tell you anything. I mean, the, the, the only way to determine the price of something is to find out what someone will pay for it. Right. And I mean, yeah, maybe there's some sales in the secondary market. you know, maybe you can try to link it to uh the price of publicly traded companies that are comparable, but like at the end of the day, i, I honestly, I call bullshit on that. I don't think right. they have a clue what these companies are worth, and I don't think that they could. Mm-hmm. I mean they're doing their best, but they're they're flying blind. Really?
0: And, and I mean, that's why yeah, I th- that's kind y- of the inherent challenge with the private markets, right? I mean, you just don't have a public market for this stuff. And so it's a very limited market, which is inherently sort of distorted.
1: Yeah. And so, um, you know, it, it, because these companies have raised a lot of money, I mean, you know, everybody who I talk to will tell you off the record, like, oh yeah, we have a war chest. We've raised a bunch of money. Um, some of them with very high burn rates, I think, uh, are, are more in danger of blowing up than others. Um, but even if funding seizes up tomorrow, you know, you have a period of, of six to 18 months or even years, um, before you find out, before the tide goes out and you find out who... Who right. was not able to convert to profitability, and so instead of this bubble just exploding like the last one and or the big one in 2000, it's just like a slow leak of air. And nice. I think for some people that'll be reassuring, but for the people who are really paying attention, um, it it, it means that uh, any any sort of disjuncture, any inflection point in the rate at which companies are failing, people might not anticipate. Because it's just, it's happening slowly until Mm -hmm. one day a bunch blow up all at once, or you get, I mean, imagine tomorrow that Uber, uh, because their plans in China don't work out and because of their sort of funny accounting on profitability in North America has to, um, revalue themselves and and they're worth half as much, they go from 60 to 30 billion. I mean, you can't tell me that wouldn't have a major impact. And I know because they have told me that they have significant runway. So maybe that is two years off. Maybe it's somebody else that has to do that. But I, uh, ultimately, I think my skepticism gets the better of me and, and makes me feel like if the funding environment really is the way that, you know, VCs are saying it is now, uh, barring a big change in that, um, we're going to see a bunch of unicorns just slowly get picked off one by one.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a fascinating topic. I think the hardest thing about it is that kind of bubbles are to some extent kind of in the eye of the beholder. You know, it's sort of very, very hard to know you're in one until it does sort of definitively burst. Um, you know, we have got these interesting signs that you talk about and have talked about just now as well. Uh, And clearly some people from within the industry that are starting to believe this. Um, There was a great interview, I think, with Keith Rabois from, I think, with Kara Swisher on one of the Recode podcasts recently. And uh, if there's something that our listeners are interested in, that's well worth listening to because he kind of goes into quite a bit of depth about his thoughts about all of this. Um, As we transition to kind of the third column that we're going to talk about, which is the one about Apple and the, the new iPad Pro, uh, another question I have, I guess, is, you know, the the bubble one, the, the title is fairly sort of strident, you know, the tech bubble is bursting. And this Apple one that we're about to talk about the title is Apple is missing a golden opportunity. And again, there are some fairly sort of strong uh, opinions and conclusions in there. Kind of, as a tech columnist, do you feel like that's your duty to kind of draw these strong conclusions? And do you ever feel like you have to in, in the service of writing something interesting you have to maybe even go further than your true feelings on things or do you only kind of ever make these strong opinions when you really kind of have the you feel like you have a firm basis in fact and that's really what you believe
1: so i mean that's an excellent point right the temptation is to to be overblown in your claims um uh, i think that my editors at the journal are by nature uh quite conservative and i don't say that in a bad way at all. I think that it's valuable because any thesis that I want to articulate, they're going to push back on pretty hard and they're going to say, well, what about this? Um, so there, these columns are, are, are more than ever a real collaborative process. I'll draw, um, you know, experts from our own staff, people who report on these beats every day are going to weigh in. Um, and, and you know, my editors who are very smart editors are going to really stress test um a lot of what i write um that said as a columnist it's absolutely my my this is duty number one every week is to, is to state an opinion and defend it so i'm never gonna write a piece that's just kind of like hey what's up with the vr well some parts of vr are good some other parts are problematic you know this has been your daily update um So I think the result is, and I think this might be a little confusing to some readers, but I think the ones who are reading closely get it. There are times when, you know, I am going to articulate sort of one side of an argument. And that doesn't mean that it's one-sided because there's always that to-be-sure paragraph in there. But it's kind of like if I had 3,000 words instead of 800, it might be like, here's one side of the argument, here's the other side of the argument, you know, here's where they overlap, you know, pick the axioms that you feel the most comfortable with and draw your own conclusion. Um, but you know, I mean, Felix Salmon once said that, uh, that the essence of a good blog post, I mean, this is true for columns as well, is that it, it can only ever encompass one idea. So you have to pick, you have to pick that one idea and you have to run with it. I mean, if you want to see a direct contrast, I mean, the piece that I wrote about why the iPad pro isn't ready to be your iPad replacement. Um, Steve Sinofsky formerly of Microsoft wrote a great blog post about how he did replace his, uh, PC with a 9.7 inch iPad pro. And you know, he goes on for thousands of words about what it can and cannot do. Um, but I just started with the, with the thesis that, um, Apple is moving in that direction and there is just a lot more that it could do. And, you know, with Apple, it's never clear what design trade-offs it's going to choose. And it's, and it's also never clear like what, what design trade-offs are right. And I think that, that what's different these days is Google is m- much more thoughtful than they have ever uh, Google is a much more thoughtful foil for Apple than Microsoft was back in the PC days. And even Microsoft is now a much more thoughtful foil for Apple. So I think that we all benefit because there's there's really strong competition, specifically in this space of of new mobile and, and uh, OSs and thinking desktop OSs. I mean, there's all this cool stuff that's going to come out in Android N, um, which could be expressed in a device like the Pixel C, which is their sort of iPad Pro competitor. Um, there's interesting stuff in Chrome. Micro, uh, Microsoft has been doing interesting stuff for a, a long time with Windows Mobile. Or, well, just, it's just all Windows now. Um, and then you see these funny things come out of China, like these uh, Jira OS, which is uh, a modification of Android. And so you, you see a lot of different companies that have good design chops and, and, and talented coders exploring the sort of parameter space of what's possible. Um, you know, at the end of the day, Apple has the advantages that Apple has always had, which is just this incredible, uh, incredibly huge installed base of iOS users and their brand and their sort of unsurpassed hardware. Um, so it can be sort of exciting and frustrating to watch what Apple does because they are as always they they kind of wait and see what other people do. Um, and so they can be a little bit behind. Um, that said, I mean, Tim Cook has declared over and over again that, that he uses his own iPad to do 80% of, uh, his job. And, you know, that's something he declared before the iPad Pro ever came out. Although I think the evidence now is probably that he was using an iPad Pro that whole time.
0: Uh, So I wanted to kind of, uh, as we kind of talk about this particular column a little bit more, I wanted to kind of go to the last paragraph in your piece. And in that last paragraph, you'd said, Um, that is why i still think tablets and the ipad if apple is lucky will ultimately replace nearly all pcs but rhetoric about an ipad pro as a drop-in replacement for a five-year-old pc now just one part of a much larger network of habits software infrastructure and dependencies is folly so i guess that that feels like a good starting point and on the one hand you're saying it's all going to be tablets and on the other hand you're saying but not now and so i guess the big question for my mind is well twofold one is kind of what is the definition of a tablet if to be really useful, it needs to kind of look a lot like a PC. And one of the things you you mentioned is kind of trackpads and mice and so on. Um, The other thing is kind of what's the difference between now and this future that you kind of envisaged sort of five years off or whatever?
1: Yeah, so I think that um, the challenge here is, like it's very easy to confuse the, the means by which we accomplish something for the task itself, like it's easy to forget that, um, you know, your job is not Excel. Your job is not making PowerPoints, you know, your job is not sending emails, right? Your job is, uh, you know, calculating your job is building companies. Your job is communicating, um, and those, you know, tool chains as they're called, um, have many, many dependencies in them and getting people to change that is very difficult. So right now, if you want somebody to move to uh, a tablet, you have to make it very PC-like. Um, f- five, 10 years from now, uh, you may get users who are so much more accustomed to the sort of mobile OS paradigm that they don't they don't need to do that anymore. I mean, it's kind of like how when we first moved to mobile, there was all this so-called skeuomorphic design where it's like your calendar on the iPhone looked like a real calendar. Um, and then we moved to flat design because everyone was like, well, okay, we know what, we know what calendars and email and all these things look like on our phones. Like we don't need them to reference anything else. Like we, we've all sort of been trained. So, um, it's obvious that tablets and mobile devices can do the things that we need to accomplish the thing that's tricky is all the connective tissue the habits the services the apps um and the way that we string them together and you know that's a long learning process and and i think people kind of you get early adopters who figure that out very quickly and then you know, you have tons of people who are sort of stranded at various other points along that technology adoption curve. I mean, this is why you still have – I mean, sometimes I'll interview people. My favorite one was farmers. Uh, you know, farmers are now getting this cloud software that enables them to do, like, really incredible things. Like, you know, you, if you, a farmer with the right software can increase their yield by 20% overnight, which is astonishing when you think about it. Part of the reason, though, is that, like, you have a lot of farmers who are still doing things with pen and paper – So when you think about the majority of businesses and how they use PCs, um, you, you've got to accommodate that transition and Apple is, you know, obviously very forward thinking in terms of, you know, uh, when I've talked to them, you know, they say things like, uh, well, we don't want to make the iPad more like a PC because in the future communication is going to be different. It's going to be more visual. You know, there's a reason that the iPad still has a camera on it. You know, you're going to take more pictures and send those. Like you're gonna you're gonna use software in a different way in order to communicate things. There's going to be less typing. You know, like we're so keyboard dependent now, but that's not going to be true in the future. And that's all totally believable. But obviously, we have to we have to create a bridge between the present and that imagined future.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where I think the the phrase that Tim Cook uses about the iPad Pro um, from back in the fall when they introduced the bigger one was you know about this is kind of our best version of our vision of the future of computing essentially and it that's key that it's not the present of computing but it's the future of computing like this is the direction that the iPad pro is eventually going to go in in such a way that it does become kind of the way that we do things in future but by implication it's not the present so it's going to take us some time to kind of get to that vision in full and i think this the problem then is that you then say that you know this can replace your pc today at the same time and so there's that kind of inherent conflict between talking about this as a future vision and then trying to bring it back down to earth today and so that it's a pc replacement for many people which i don't think it quite can be yet
1: yeah i mean it- it really can't, and um, I, I think that uh, there's a larger theme here, which is I think that um, I think we might, especially those of us who write about tech regularly and think about it, I, I think that the proliferation of different types of devices and interfaces, and I mean, when you take it in totality, right, you talk about PCs, uh, mobile uh wearables, um, internet of things, smart homes, smart factories. Um, tech is a bigger and bigger demand on our attention and learning these systems is a bigger and bigger ask. Um, you know, I mean, it took us long enough to get everybody on board with like, here's a keyboard, here's a mouse, here's the desktop metaphor, you know, here's the software you need to learn. Um, with that proliferation, uh, I, I, I think, and maybe it was you who was talking about this, or, or somebody else talked about um, this concept of behavioral debt, it's like technical debt. And you know the idea is just that people have become so accustomed to doing things in one way, um, and to ask them to sort of change that entire behavior pattern and use an entirely new set of devices and software that functions in a different way that 's very challenging for them, and people don 't always have the time to relearn it and unless necessity drives them to, they won't um, and, I, and I think that, that it 's easy to forget that the biggest rate limiter on the real impact of tech on everyone 's lives is not the rate at which we can produce or perfect this new technology it's the it 's the rate of adoption and you know I have no objective measure of this, but as much as I think everyone has a drive to stay current. I do wonder uh, the extent to which the complexity of all these new systems that we're introducing is a drag on their adoption, because in total, um, it's just a bigger ask than it ever has been before.
0: Great. Well, I think that's a good place to, to wrap this up. So thanks very much, Christopher, for spending the time with us today. Um, appreciate your time. Appreciate your insights. We'll include links to the columns that we've discussed on the uh, podcast website so that you can easily link to those uh christopher you're pretty active on twitter and your handle is mims m-i-m-s uh, any other sort of keys to how people should find you
1: uh no that's it uh you can find me on twitter and my dms are open
0: <laughs> cool all right good to know well thanks again christopher
1: all right thanks so much
0: Thanks again to Christopher Mims for joining us. Again, there will be links to several of his columns and other things on the podcast website at podcast.beyonddevices. And again, this is a temporary departure from our usual format, but next week Aaron will be back again and we should be back to our usual format with a news roundup, a question of the week and various other things uh, covering recent tech news and that kind
1: of stuff. So uh, thanks again for being with us and we look forward to speaking with you again next time. Bye.